Well, Merry Christmas. That's still ringing a bit, if you don't mind bringing that. Just bring that slider down a tiny bit on the lapel. Okay. Now it's completely gone. Yeah. Okay. All right. That sounds good. All right. Thank you very much. Okay. Well, we have uh, another scripture today in Luke chapter 2. We'll be taking a look at the traditional Christmas scriptures there, the birth of Christ as it's accounted by Luke. And as it fit his purposes to reveal all of these things, it didn't fit the purposes of what they call the other synoptic gospels of Matthew and Mark. And John handled the, the advent of Christ in kind of a very general, very theological way. Luke here has a unique account, and clearly Mary was one of his sources, uh, possibly even uh, others that were there at the time. He uh, relied primarily on eyewitness sources for what he uh, revealed to us in both Luke and in the book of Acts. And we want to talk about the return of glory. The glory of God returned to Israel in the person of Jesus Christ, who will share his glory ultimately with his people forever. And we're going to unfold a little bit about what that talks about, because Christmas is not just the, the coming of a good Savior, the coming of a good man. Christmas is about that coming, coming continually until a final coming, a second coming, as we call it, in which all the people will be blessed with the glory and presence of God forever. And so this is a powerful and important truth for us to take a look at. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to parade you through some things in a past, present, future kind of way, maybe reminiscent of Charles Dickens a little bit, but I won't press the analogy, nor am I going to handle them in order because we live in the present. That is what's relevant to us. But in order for us to rightly live as believers in the present, we need to account for the past. We need to look toward the future. And then, and only then, do we have the perspective to handle the present. So we're going to begin with the past. And what I want to do is I want to uh, share with you in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20, what it says there. And in there, what we're going to find is we're going to find an emphasis on the word glory. Glory is going to appear here twice, and it's going to be kind of a central, central kind of idea. And it even appears later in the chapter as uh, we meet a man named Simeon. But for the first 20 verses, here's what it says. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were feared, filled with great fear. 
And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's begin word of prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for the scripture today. We pray, Lord, that as we go through the scriptures and as we look at these things, Lord, that you'll show us the great truth that glory is found in Jesus Christ, that that glory he shares with those who will treasure him and believe him forever. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we have the uh, basis in the midst of this text for many a hymn, Glory to God in the Highest, and we sing Gloria in Excelsis Deo, which is Latin, meaning glory in the highest to God. They switch the word order around a little bit, but that is what it means when we sing that from the hymn, Angels We've Heard on High. But something I want to point out is I want to take peruse through Scripture just a bit, and I want to you to consider the glory of the past and what glory means in the scriptures and as we follow it through the Old Testament leading up to the birth of Christ because this we find brings all the significance to bear upon this word being used at his birth. Uh, we see that God took glory over Pharaoh when he says in Exodus, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. This idea of glory being fame or majesty, respect, is tied up in this concept of glory as we find it here. Later in that same chapter, he says, I'll harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, that is the people of Israel after they leave, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. See, the glory is what testifies to who God is. That he glorifies himself over Pharaoh and the people of Egypt through the plagues and through bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. And this is how they will know that he is the Lord. He manifests his glory in a visible way, leading the the people in the wilderness, and, and particularly when they come to Mount Sinai, it says this about Mount Sinai, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst 
of the cloud. So here we have a visible cloud, which is referred to as the glory, the visible manifestation of his glory upon the top of the mountain. And it says in verse 17, Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people Israel. And so this was a frightening scene. This was a terrifying situation for the Israelites to behold, this burning happening atop the mountain. And it's interesting that when the Lord met with Moses, there was a burning bush. The, now the bush wasn't consumed. It appeared to be burning. But now that he's got a whole multitude, over a million of these Israelites there at Mount Sinai gathered together to witness this, that it appears as a burning of the entire mountain. And then he continues on with leading them in a visible pillar of fire by night, a pillar of cloud by day that led the people through the wilderness. In the midst of all this difficulty and trouble that they were having in the wilderness and they're struggling with their faithfulness to God, Moses asked something very interesting of the Lord. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he goes on, and the Lord assures him, my presence will go with you. And Moses continues to interact. And Moses says in verse 18, please show me your glory. And in an utterly unique situation in the Bible, God does, at least in part. So God does reveal his glory, but Moses can't see all of it. And this is very important because he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy to whom I on whom I will show mercy. But look at verse 20. He says, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. This is an important verse for you to know and understand because so many people in the world today, they object at the Christian message. And they say, why doesn't God just come show himself? Because God is too kind to do that. Because we could not see him in our sinful state and live. And this he says to Moses, I'm going to show you part of it. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to cover you over. I'm going to pass by and I'm going to remove my hand and you'll be able to see kind of part of it but you can't look upon my face and live. So now we begin to see, okay, what is the purpose of God manifesting? Is God a cloud? Is God a light? Well, he is called light, but he's not literally light. Light is part of creation. He is manifests himself in a cloud, but he's not literally a cloud. So what is the cloud and the fire and all this about? This is about showing his presence manifesting, making real, making sensible, that is, it can be detected by the senses, his glory. He can't show his face to us, and so he shows 
the people of Israel these glimpses of a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud, the rumblings and the thunder atop the Mount Sinai that looks like it's being burned with the churning of the cloud and everything else that's going on. And then he gives them designs for a tabernacle. And he says, I'm going to show you how to build the house for me. This is going to be a tent for me. And you're going to build it according to my specifications and I will come be there in that place in the midst of the people of Israel. And as you look at the description and, and you understand the description, you can find some of it in Exodus chapter 40 uh, when they actually dedicate this tabernacle. It says the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then as they journeyed, once they had the tabernacle from that point forward, when God would take the cloud up from the tabernacle, then they knew, okay, it's time to go. It's time to move on. Pack up the tabernacle. We're going somewhere else. And then he would tell them where to camp, and they would camp, and they'd set up the tabernacle. And when it was all ready, he'd descend the cloud again. And he was giving them this visible presence. This was not something that was necessary for God to do. This was something that he was giving them as a visible manifestation of his presence. Now it's interesting because the same thing, kind of the same thing happens when they build a temple, which is kind of a more permanent version of the tabernacle. It wasn't a tent, it was a building. And it was in Jerusalem. And when they built the temple, he did it again. He filled it and they couldn't even go in there and minister right away because of the glory of the Lord being there in this cloud and they, they couldn't even go into it. But he did it at the temple differently. He only did it at the inauguration of the temple. There's no mention of the cloud being over the temple on a continuing basis like it had been over the tabernacle while they were wandering in the wilderness. As a matter of fact, when they brought the tabernacle into the promised land, now that they were in the promised land, it didn't appear that the cloud remained over the tabernacle all the time. And so it's not mentioned for quite a time after that. Now you need to know the prophet Ezekiel because the prophet Ezekiel shows us something very important about this temple and about its going, goings on and has things come and go here. Let me... Uh, let me bring up my outline for you here. Where we have the, the visible glory at Mount Sinai, the uh, personal glory for Moses, the glory filling the tabernacle, the glory filling the temple. And then comes a prophet Ezekiel. And Ezekiel ministered during a time in which the, the people of Israel had pressed God to his limit. That they had taken him, that they had been so unfaithful and so trying to him over so many centuries. That he's finally like, okay, I'm going to enact the part of the covenant that says, I take you out of the land that I gave you. And one of the, the first groups of people to go out included a prophet named Ezekiel, and he ministered from over there in Babylon, and it was to him and to Jeremiah that the Lord revealed, I'm going to destroy the temple, that place that he dwelt with them in Jerusalem. And the Babylonians are going to destroy it. And Ezekiel is given this vision of the, the glory departing the temple. 
and how profoundly sad that is when you consider what the glory had meant to them all along. The glory departs the temple in Ezekiel 10, 18, and it looks something like this. I'll, I'll get that for you. The glory of the Lord went out. So he has this vision of the temple. He sees the temple. He sees the glory. And this is Ezekiel. He's way over in Babylon. He's not literally seeing the temple. And he's seeing then the glory of the Lord on the temple. And it says, then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. So it's this vision of these, these wild creatures called cherubim, these great angels. And the glory of the Lord departs the temple, goes over the cherubim, which are like carrying a throne kind of thing. And it goes away. Ezekiel was being shown. You know the scriptures, Ezekiel. You know when you built the tabernacle that I came and my glory was there. And you know that when Solomon dedicated the temple, I put my glory there. So much so and so visible that people couldn't even minister right away in it. Well, now that glory has left. Because the reasoning in Israel was, well, his glory came to dwell on the temple. Therefore, he can never have the temple destroyed. Jerusalem will stand forever because that's the dwelling place of God. And nothing can outdo God and nothing could destroy his house. Unless first, the strong man left the house. And then it could be plundered. But Ezekiel is not all bad news. Ezekiel gets a vision of glory returning to the temple. First, he's given this vision of this fantastic temple. And some people call it the millennial temple. But if you really pay attention to what's being described by Ezekiel, the, dimension, the dimensions of the temple he describes are literally impossible to build. And they're impossible to build, particularly in the small nation of Israel. So the whole vision that Ezekiel is given is clearly symbolic. And as we understand it, and as we see the principles outlined there, we find out it's actually pointing forward to some of the things Jesus Christ will do. And some of the things that the church of Jesus Christ will be. And it's interesting because Jesus has entered once and for all, according to the book of Hebrews, the holy of holies in heaven. Where the earthly things, the tabernacle, the temple, these things were symbolic of greater spiritual truths of things really going on in heaven. Great realities of the salvation of Christ that he would bring, the presence of God that there is, the relationship of the Father and the Son. And so there's not necessary another temple. But then comes the New Testament, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. And he says to his disciples before he's taken and crucified, he says, on this rock, I'll build my church. The gates of hell shall not overcome it. Well, that's interesting. Build his church. Interesting choice of words. And then later in the New Testament, we find out yeah, the church is called a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. It's called a temple of the Holy Spirit. That this would be the new dwelling place of God. 
So the prophets then speak a great deal about glory. The Psalms speak a great deal about glory. And we see most of those things that the Psalms and the prophets were speaking of point toward Jesus Christ, especially when you read the book of Isaiah, where glory is a major theme all throughout there. And then we open up the scriptures on Christmas and we read, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. See, about 600 years prior to this, the temple had been destroyed and Ezekiel was given the vision, the glory's left the temple, the glory's gone. And they went out in exile for a while and the Persians allowed them to come back all by the, the coordinated effort of God and, and his forces. And they bring the people of Israel back and they rebuild the temple. And guess what's not mentioned in the rebuilding of the temple? Glory. Matter of fact, some of the old, God, old timers that were around when they started building the temple, once they got the foundation of it laid, they looked at it and wept because it was pitiful compared to what Solomon had built. And there's no mention of the glory returning. But the glory does return in the person of Jesus Christ. In the narrative of Scripture, there's no manifestation of glory between the temple and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's something really to think about. So when we read Luke chapter 2 and we see the word glory shows here, the glory of the Lord shone around them. These shepherds are experiencing a first in over 600 years of a visible manifestation of the glory of God. And it comes on the occasion of the birth of Christ. The glory returns to Israel in the person of Christ. It's part of the song there in verse 14 that the angels are singing, glory to God in the highest or glory to God most high because he is doing all that he said he would do. Later on, they're going to meet a man at the temple who's going to prophesy over the Lord Jesus. <laughs> they're going to meet this, this random stranger in the temple, and he's actually going to ask to hold the child, and they're going to let him. I mean, it's all a very strange tale. But some of the things this man says, look what he says about who Jesus would be. He says, Lord, and he praises the Lord there, holding the, the child Jesus. Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Why is Israel in the news every day? because Jesus Christ was born there. Oh, their temple was destroyed in 70 AD. That's nearly 2,000 years ago. They weren't reformed as a nation until 1948. They were pretty much irrelevant to the world, except for some reason they seem to thrive everywhere they go. The glory returned to Israel in the person of Jesus Christ. 
And this shift in the glory is documented probably best by John, for whom this is a key word in his gospel. The word became flesh, he says in his opening chapter, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, in the Old Testament, the glory was the pillar of fire or the pillar of cloud. It was the cloud filling the tabernacle. It was the rumblings and the shakings and the voice from heaven from Mount Sinai. But glory in the New Testament is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In chapter 11, when his friend Lazarus dies, and he allows it, and he even delays coming to respond so that he'll be in the grave four days so that he can do a resurrection, it's interesting what he says. He says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? He's fixing to raise Lazarus from the dead there. And they're all concerned, why weren't you here? If you were here, you could have healed him. You could have helped him. And he says, look, I told you, didn't I? If you would believe, then you see the glory of God. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. This is the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the night that he was taken to be crucified, right before his arrest, he prays a prayer. And in that prayer, he talks about glory. He says, now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. See, the Son's eternal. The Son was with the Father, and he came to be in, in human form, but he returned to the Father, and he says, glorify me again just like that. And Jesus entered into even more glory at his ascension when he mentions it in Luke chapter 24, and he argues from the scriptures with his disciples, and he says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? In other words, wasn't it necessary that first I would suffer, then enter into the glory? And this, be, this as we look back, he says these words, and it causes us to retrace scripture and understand this is a theme. All through the Bible, this suffering to glory kind of thing. And you think about all the decades that David was hunted and despised and yet finally became this glorious king. And you think of all the struggles that Israel had in the wilderness and then finally given the promised land. And you think of, of God's difficulty and struggles and, and almost failure with the people of Israel. Now, it didn't fail because his plan was not for it to fail. But it seemed like utter hopelessness at the end of the Old Testament. And then what happens? The glory of the Lord shone around a bunch of shepherds. And the angels sang, glory to God in the highest. We're told in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, we see him for who a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You see what the glory of God is? What is it that makes God worthy of worship? What is it that makes him famous? His mercy, 
and his grace. And we sing glory to God in the highest. Well, that's the glory of the past. It's also great glory in the future. And when we think about this, the return of Jesus will bring even more glory. Listen to some of the things Jesus said about this. He says, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. He says, Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. See, there'll be great glory in that time and in that return of Christ. But the glory is shared. The glory is shared. 1 Peter 4.11 speaks of the fact that everything in that, that we ought to do everything in order that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And in a prayer, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This glory he will share with his people. And I want to show you some of these. Romans 8.21, creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Listen now, Paul says it in 2 Corinthians. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That this transformation of the people of God, this final transformation when he returns, we just won't be the same people. He will transform us from one form that already has some glory to another form of complete glory. And we'll share his glory. And what will that be like? See, people talk about what they look forward to in, in the new heaven and new earth. What they look forward, oh, I look forward to sickness being gone and and death being gone, and I look forward to, to all those kinds of difficulties that come along with sin. But I think most of all, I think if we really ponder it, we'll be very thankful and happy and look forward to the annihilation of sin from our own being. That we could be a people in whom we are pleased. Because I know people, and I know there's probably not one person sitting here who is utterly pleased with who you are and what you think and how you feel. But know this, there is a God who is so glorious and so good that he is going to bring you to a place of such utter glory that you will have the contentment with yourself that he has in himself. And it will be because he will have glorified us. And that will bring all glory to him and honor to him and all praise to him. And how could we ever stop singing of the one who did that for us?
that while we were yet sinners, he saved us. And giving us far more than a second chance, he gives us a second life. This is the future glory of his people. But this brings us to a very important point about the glorious present. Yeah, I borrowed an illustration there from Dickens. I don't know if you noticed those on the, the previous slides. And this one here, this is the, the original artist depiction, Mr. Leach, who did the illustrations for the first edition. This was his impression of what the ghost of Christmas present would be like. And this guy's all about the party. He's dressed in a comfy robe. He's got a wreath on. He's all smiles. And do you understand, based on God's revelation of his glory in the past, based on his revelation of the glory that's to be in his people, what then ought the present to be like? The present ought to be like this, ought to be like those who have seen something, something so radical and been told such a thing as to leave their post in the middle of the night, probably giving the care of their sheep into friends or neighbors or something like that, and going into the city and risking rousing people in the middle of the night and being despised as they were, being thrown out of town or whatever, or ridiculed, these lowly shepherds then, they go in search of what they have been told for. They were told to go and find it. Go into the city and see. Go into the city. I'm not going into the city. Kids throw rocks at me because I smell like these sheep. No, go into the city. Go find the one who's wrapped in swaddling cloths just like you wrap the little lambs that are going to go to sacrifice. When they're born, you wrap them tight in cloths to keep them from blemish when they're first newborn. Yeah, you're going to find a human. He's wrapped up like that too. Take a hint. And you go in there and you go into the city and you find him. And they do. And when they do, what do they do? They tell Mary and Joseph. Okay? Now I want you to think about this for a minute. And this is how the Lord often does things. And we think of the Apostle Paul and we look at his adventures in the book of Acts and everything else, and, and we think of all the great things he did and the great letters he wrote, so much of the New Testament he wrote, and, and how God mightily used him to, to forge a, a, his church. But do you know this guy Ananias was given the assignment, you go tell Paul what to do. That's real interesting to me. How about David the king? Greatest king Israel ever had. Do you realize this guy, Samuel? He was told, you go and you anoint that king. Well, the greater always anoints the lesser, right? And here, these shepherds go and they've got a thing or two to tell Mary and Joseph about. And I think that's really cool. And they tell those things to him, and, and they take it in. And Mary treasures up in his heart, in her heart. Mary and Joseph didn't see the angels. They didn't hear the angelic chorus singing glory to God in the highest. They came and they, they related to Mary and Joseph. 
because that's how God works. And here you are. You've heard a thing or two about Jesus. You've had his glory revealed to you in the scriptures, and you've seen it, and you've, and you've had some measure of it in your heart, I pray. Or even the Spirit of God fill you. And now you've got a news to share. These shepherds did it like this. The progression of the shepherds, glory shone around them. They were filled with great fear. And then the angel chorus, glory to God in the highest, tells them what to go do. And then in verse 17, when they saw it, they made known the saying. So when they see the, the child, they make known what had been told them about him. And then look at verse 20. After they leave there, they return glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The glory of this present is that this is the only time in history that we can proclaim this great truth and people can be saved and lives can be transformed. This is it. It wasn't done before Christ came. It won't be done after he returns. We are given this supreme privilege, this supreme message, this ministry, as Paul calls it, the ministry of reconciliation, where God is reconciling to himself the world through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a privilege beyond description. So the first thing that we ought to do is follow the shepherd's example to spread the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, to tell, tell people why do, we, why do we do these things? Why, why the cups at certain restaurants change to red and green each year? Oh, they won't say Merry Christmas. But by doing so, they've given you permission to. In fact, I hope you feel like it's a command to, because indeed it is a command in the scriptures to go and make disciples. And here's what I want you to also see from these scriptures and from what we've seen here today, is I want you to see very clearly that yes, God is reconciling the world to himself, but God has the power to bring glory from even the most humble of circumstances. He brings glory even from the most humble of circumstances. We talked about Mary and her situation and Joseph and his, and that from these two, he brings forth his Christ. He is born not in a temple, not in a, a palace, not in a, a place of great special, but a, a place of high access. You realize when there was no room found for him at the inn, okay, that wasn't a hotel that was full. That was probably a relative's house. And what they would do is they would normally have an extra upper room or, or partition off the room that they had to allow people in. But instead, most of these homes in that time, they had a lower area where the animals were brought in from bad weather or cold weather in order to shelter in this lower area was kind of for storage and where they kept the animals food stuff like that that's where they were 
because customs as they were, there was no way a shepherd was going to be allowed in the house. God in his great wisdom says, I'm going to show that my Christ can be approached even by the least of them. I'm going to bring shepherds right in and they're going to stand right there where he was born. He grants this access and he does it through the most incredible way. And, and as you review the scriptures, here's what you'll find out, that God uses idolaters and liars and the poor and the small and the flawed and the simple to turn the world upside down. And he does it again and again and again. And the apostle Paul saw this as being so true, he made a general principle out of it. In 1 Corinthians, he says, this is what God does he shames the wise of this world with the foolish. And he has chosen the foolish things of this world to do it. Why don't all the foolish things say amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, you are so good that you have done the ultimate grassroots movement that what you have done you have done it from person to person from humble beginnings that you have spread this through the world in an incredible way and in this is found your glory the glory that does things upside down from the way the world does things the glory that says that a person's worth is in what you define and not what the world defines. That a person's greatness is in how much grace they've been shown and not how many things they can do and not how many likes that they have. You have so shown us, Lord, that your great glory is to conceal a thing and then to reveal it to whom you will. We gather today, Lord, as recipients of your grace. And we just praise you for it because there's nothing we can do to take credit. For there's nothing we contributed but the sin that made it necessary. But you have given such great things. And you are making the Lord Jesus known despite the movements of the world, despite the whims of the authorities in the world, despite the so-called powerful and influential, you continue to make your light shine, even in the darkest places. Lord, capture our hearts with this truth and help us to be about the work of your ministry of reconciliation, that we may be filled with the joy with which you sent Jesus and the joy that he is filled with by the great many witnesses. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace upon us. We thank you for this time we've spent together. We ask you to bless our holiday with the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring you great glory and put you at the center. We thank you for this day. We thank you for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.